So that was the uh, trailer to a 2010 documentary called The Man Who Stopped the Desert. It's about uh, a man named Yakuba Sawadogo, and I probably mispronounced his name. I apologize to him, though we won't hear this, of course. Um, and so I was, a, I was a 10th grade world cultures teacher for a while, so this, this stuff kind of really interests me, right? Like, you've probably all heard the term desertification. At least I hope you have. Uh, as a former world cultures teacher, it would make me very sad if you weren't. But um, desertification is this idea that basically, of course, that the areas surrounding deserts tend to eventually become deserts, that uh, the desert spreads and takes over. And so um, the Sahara Desert, which I'm, I'm sure you all have heard of, right, is a fairly large tract of desert in northern Africa. It's roughly the size of the entire United States, including Alaska and Hawaii. So it's a pretty big piece of desert. On the edge, as you saw in the clip, is a, a section called the Sahel. It's kind of the border area between the more fertile regions and the desert. And Burkina Faso is on the kind of the west end of Africa, and, and has a, there's a chunk of the northern part of the country that is in the Sahel. And, and this is part of this story. And in the story, you can kind of see the, the natural progression of how this goes. The, the desert begins to grow. People increasingly see that they're unable to grow the crops that they need to survive, and so they leave. They, they go to a city. They move to a city, or they at least move to more fertile land so they can farm. But in this story, Yukuba utilizes this genius but ancient idea of farming called Zai. It's, it's African farming. And, and basically what they do is he, would, he dug little ditches that would collect water. And he'd use different kinds of, of composting, manure and some other things, uh, to fertilize the ground. And then he looked around and he noticed that even though the, the ground can at times be as hard as concrete in the Sahel, there was something that was able to penetrate every time, and that was termites. And so he got some termites, and he somehow utilized the termites in the process to kind of uh, to irrigate the land, right? To dig down, to make tunnels so that the water can drain down into the soil. He made retaining walls to keep the water in when it would rain. He just, he was a creative genius. But the people around him thought he was, they thought he was going crazy. They're like, you're not going to be able to stop the desert. It's the desert, right? Like, it just does, you can't, one person, as great of an idea as you might have, you're not going to be able to stop it. Except that, with a lot of hard work, he was actually able to cultivate about 50 acres of farmable land from the desert. He literally stopped the desert, at least in that area, and was able to then employ dozens of other people to work with him and feed thousands from the crops that he grew. His creativity and his courage enabled him to stand against what seemed like an unstoppable force and bring life from what looked like it was dead. This morning we are, of course, looking at the resurrection. And we're particularly looking at it, uh, looking at John's story. John is the fourth gospel that we find in the New Testament, the fourth biography of Jesus. And if you were here uh, a little bit earlier in the service, uh, Monique read to us, kind of the longish story that, that John gives us, that this story of this amazingly creative response to what seemed to be the unstoppable force of death. We see God's creative act 
to push back the darkness. Now, John, he begins his story with a really interesting sentence. It's, easy, it's one of those sentences that it's easy to kind of blow by and just kind of think it's one of these details, but it's actually really important. John begins chapter 20, verse 1, with this phrase, early on the first day of the week. Early on the first day of the week. Now, that might not seem particularly interesting to you. It may just seem like kind of a detail. John just happens to be letting us know that it was Sunday, that this all happened. But again, having access to these kinds of resources, parchments that you could write on, the education that enabled you to be literate so that you could actually write, all of these things were very expensive and very time-consuming. And so you didn't just waste words. They wrote things down specifically, intentionally. And one of the things you learn when you come to John's story of Jesus is that John is very intentionally drawing a parallel from another really well-known story, at least for the Hebrews, and that's the story of creation. So the very first book you come to in the Bible is Genesis, means origins. And the first two chapters are these creation stories. They tell us about how, why God created. And we learn lots of amazing things about who God is and what it is that God is up to in these two creation stories. John very intentionally draws a parallel with his story of Jesus and these creation stories. So in the beginning of the creation story, the very first thing we learn about God in Genesis chapter 1 is that God creates light. On the first day, the only thing that God does is he creates light. Everything's dark, God creates light, and he separates the darkness with the light. That's day one. When you come to John's story, the very first thing we learn about Jesus is this. Well, we learn that Jesus is the word, That's what John tells us. Jesus is the word that he was there in the beginning with God. But then we learn this about Jesus. John says in chapter 1, verse 4 to 5, In him Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in the beginning, the very first thing God does is he creates light, and he separates the darkness. And out of that, he creates all manner of different things, right? The universe as we know it. Stars and moon and sun and water and mountains and land and birds and monkeys and everything, right? And then humans. But then things go sideways. It seems like things are regressing. Where the light was winning, now things are going backwards in a hurry. And so when John introduces us to Jesus... He says, this is the true light. This is the true light. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome it. This is the light that's going to do what the light was always intended to do, but didn't do. This is what we've been waiting for. That light from the beginning is now here in Jesus, and the darkness won't overcome it. So it leaves the reader wondering, well, how's that going to work? That's interesting. Last time, the darkness seemed to, to push back, but, but how's, how's the light going to win this time? Early on the first day of the week, John tells us. Early on the first day of the week. But before we get to the first day of the week, there's, 
there's another experience, and that's Good Friday. Now, if Good Friday is typically the, the Friday before Easter. If you're familiar with it at all, it's, it's the day in which Jesus was killed, crucified. Now, you know, may, maybe you're like my daughter who looked at me and she's like, why do we call this Good Friday? It doesn't seem particularly good, right? And, and that juxtaposition is, is real. It's a day that we celebrate Jesus' public torture and humiliation, his death. A time when the darkness felt like it was winning. It looked very much like it was winning. From everything on the outside, it seemed like this was the day that the darkness would win. In fact, it's interesting to read Luke. So Luke is the third gospel, and each of these gospels tells us something about Jesus' death and resurrection. And listen to how Luke describes the moment of Jesus' death. This is in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 46. He says, by, by this time it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Between noon and three. Now granted, this is in first century Palestine, different time, different place, but it's still not normally dark between 12 and 3. But it's dark. The darkness seems to be winning in this moment. And it's not just that it's dark, but now the, temp- the, the curtain in the temple's torn. Well, what does that mean? Well, the, the curtain kind of separated the holy of holies, the kind of the most sacred place in the temple from everywhere else. And that was the place where they believed the spirit of God would would rest on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So like God lived in that spot. Well, the curtain was torn, right? God left the building. So not only is it physically dark, but symbolically God's gone. I mean, it's about as bleak and as hopeless of a moment as you can find. The darkness seems to be doing pretty well right about now. And I don't know about you, but part of why we keep going back to Good Friday and don't rush to this moment again and again is because many of us have experienced Good Friday moments. Many of you have been and maybe are in moments that feel a little bit like that, like the darkness is kind of winning, like God has left the building. Like No matter how hard you try or how loud you cry, it seems to just bounce off the heavens. Sometimes it feels like the darkness is winning. Maybe you, um, you woke up to news of over 200 people killed in church bombings in Sri Lanka, or you think about you know, three churches in Louisiana burned down recently. Three African-American churches burned down. Or even the, the idea of looking at a, a building that's 800 years old that has for centuries pointed to something transcendent and sacred in the Notre Dame, and you watch it burn. And you see those things, and you're like, man, sometimes it just feels like the darkness is winning. And in Good Friday, we see that God knows what that is like. 
that God in the flesh, Jesus, understands the moment where it feels as though the darkness is winning, and we say, hello? Anybody there? Jesus himself cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Good Friday reminds us that in those moments of darkness that feel like the darkness is winning, we are not alone. But it's Easter Sunday, and John says, early on the first day of the week. It is a new week beginning. John intentionally draws us to that statement, early on the first day of the week. This is the beginning of the week, folks. It's a new week. And what does that mean? Well, it's really interesting, right, as you read down through the details. What happens with Mary Magdalene as she comes and she, she finds the empty tomb and, and she's distraught and she's trying to figure out what's going on and she turns and she sees Jesus? What does John tell us that she thinks? It says, thinking, John 20, verse 15, thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Thinking he was the gardener. Now, if you go back to the end of chapter 19, we read that the tomb was in a garden. So we know this is a garden setting. Well, Mary comes out distraught looking for someone who can give her answers about where Jesus is. Remember, she doesn't expect that Jesus is going to be alive. Like, they put him in the tomb. She's just trying to figure out what is going on, and she turns, and she's distraught, and she's probably crying, and, and there's Jesus, and she thinks he's the gardener. Now, again, is that just an interesting kind of tidbit? Like, you know, John throws that in because it's kind of humorous that she thinks he's the gardener? No. This is a garden. It's the first day of the week. This is a new creation. Remember, the first thing, the first creation we got started with a garden, Eden. There was this garden named Eden that God planted, that God put people in. This was the beginning of all things. It was supposed to be this place in which we lived the way we were created to live in full life together with God and with each other. And then it just went sideways. People, we, we didn't want God telling us what to do. We wanted to be God, and so we rebelled. We, we kind of went our own way, and things went bad quickly. And we've been fighting that, that sense of wanting to be God ever since. And the garden has been a wreck. But John says, early on the first day of the week, Mary meets the gardener. It's a new week. It's a new garden. Jesus is both the light that came into the world to drive out the darkness and the gardener who begins the new Eden where life will be as it was intended to be. This is the new world that God is bringing in Jesus. He's beginning something new. And how does he do this? How does he begin to do this work? I want to pick up where Monique left off at the end of uh, verse, we'll read 17. Monique read to 18 this morning. Um, We're going to pick up at 17 and read through verse 23. 
Jesus says to Mary, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So I think two things that we see here about how Jesus, the gardener, begins this work of new creation. The first thing is what he does in us, in his followers. Christ breathes his spirit in them. Now, this is also important. Like, it, If you go back to the creation stories in Genesis, again, remember, John is drawing parallels. He wants us to hear echoes of these creation stories. In Genesis chapter 2, in the second creation story, we find that after God makes Adam, the first man, God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Like Adam is just like a mud creature. And then God breathes into his nostrils and he's alive. And what is the thing that Jesus does the first time he runs into his followers? He breathes on them. He breathes his spirit into their nostrils. They are they're now alive with the spirit of Christ. It's a, John is intentionally kind of drawing this parallel to this new creation, this new creative work that God is doing. That this very spirit that brought life to the very first man and woman is now animating us in a new way. And in fact, it's this spirit that is responsible for the resurrection that is now living in us. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8. He writes, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. That's kind of a mind-blowing thing that Paul is saying right there, right? Like this Spirit, this power that brought Jesus from the dead now lives in you now lives in me. Jesus is giving this animating spirit to us. The hope of Easter is not just what God did in Jesus, but what God through Jesus does in us by his spirit, bringing life to our mortal bodies. And then he invites us, like Adam and Eve, like these first human beings who were sent out to be those who kind of oversaw and caretakers of the planet. In this original creation story, it was, it was the, the first humans that God makes that he sends out to kind of be co-gardeners with him. And as Jesus breathes his life into his followers, the invitation is for us to go with him in this work of gardening. We get to be co-gardeners. So the first work that 
God does is in us, but the second one is through us. I mean, look at what happens in this story, right? Like, so Jesus is resurrected, and the first thing that happens is Mary takes this message to all the disciples. By the way, huge deal that, that this woman, who culturally would have been seen as not able to give testimony in a court of law, Jesus entrusts her with the message that God is doing a brand new thing in the world. Go and tell. So Mary is sent out with this message. And then when Jesus breathes on the disciples, he says, as I've been sent, now I'm sending you. Yes, I'm the gardener, but now you get to garden with me. This new thing that I'm doing, you are going to be a part of. It's going to happen with you, through you. The miracle of the resurrection is about what Christ does, what happens with Christ, what happens in us, but also what Christ does through us. We get to participate in the gardening of the new Eden. I love the image of the dandelion here. Now, I know um, some of us don't like dandelions because they are technically weeds. I happen to think they're very attractive weeds, but they're weeds nonetheless. Uh, But you know how dandelions work, right? Like you blow on them and the seeds scatter, and kids love doing this, right? And and I never realized how, when you're trying to take care of, like how much you, that would cause anxiety until I had my own yard and I was concerned about dandelions. And you see the kid who picks up the dandelion, they're like, oh, look, and you're like, no, right? Because it's just gonna, it's gonna scatter and there's gonna be seeds and more dandelions. But that's how it works, right? And that's kind of the image we get here as Jesus blows on the disciples. He, he's blowing on them and sending them in the same breath. So that as they go out and as we go out, we carry with us the seeds of the new creation. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, lives in us. And so we go out in that spirit to garden with God, to help bring about the new creation, the new thing that God is doing in the world. And as we do so, we're we're given a, a message and a mission, right? The message that we're given is, if you forgive anyone, their sins, they're forgiven. Well, Well, why that? Why is that so important? Have you ever had a conversation with someone who you didn't, you kind of thought there was an issue? Like maybe something had happened in the past and you thought maybe there was some tension. It's hard to approach that conversation fully yourself. You're kind of on guard. You're thinking through all of how you might answer certain things they come at you with. You're not really kind of you. You're kind of, all right, how do I, how do I win this or how do I kind of negotiate this? It's hard to be really yourself when there's an issue. And the thing that Jesus wanted to get out of the way from the beginning, as you go out, make sure people know they're forgiven. Make sure they know we're good. We're good. They don't have to come to God out of fear or shame or guilt. They come to a God who has generously and abundantly offered forgiveness. We're given a message to go and make sure people know who God is and what God is like. That the God 
who gives himself in Jesus on the cross has shown us the depth he'll go to welcome us back, to invite us in, to show us we are loved. And so we're given the message of forgiveness of sins. But we're also given a mission. And and in a very real way, the mission is the concrete way that we act out that message. One of the last things Jesus said to his disciples is, I give you a new command. Love one another. Now, it might sound cliche that the mission is love. But it is. And I think it's only cliche because we don't know what that means. We think love means being nice. We think love means uh, being polite. Whatever. But for Jesus, love means what we see when we see the cross. Jesus giving himself, sacrificing himself, so that we can know how deeply we are loved is the model for what it looks like to love. And so when we're sent out to do the work of gardening, we're sent out to do the hard work of self-giving love, no matter what we're doing, no matter what your vocation, no matter what your place in life, your role in gardening with Christ is learning what it means to do whatever you find to do in love. Whether you're a, a doctor or a teacher, an electrician, you work construction, maybe you're a coach or a parent, maybe you're the child of aging parents, whatever place you find yourself in, what it looks like to be a co-gardener with Christ is to say, what does it look like to do this in a way that is loving? How do I do this out of love? And whatever we plant in love grows into a permanent part of God's future. Whatever it is that we do that's rooted in love becomes a permanent fixture in the new creation that God is bringing. Because we recognize it's not fully here. We are, we are building it together. But the resurrection gives us hope that as we live in love, there are things that can withstand anything, even death. I was struck by it this morning when I was um, reading an article about the three churches that were burned in Louisiana, these three African-American churches. And uh, they were kind of juxtaposing it with the Notre Dame Cathedral and the burning, and they were talking to various folks who were associated with these different situations and as they celebrate Easter Sunday, and what is that like for them. And one of the people they interviewed was Pastor Henry Richard uh, from the Greater Union Baptist Church in Louisiana. And he said he's actually been thinking about this same passage in John's Gospel a lot. He said he was thinking about the 20th chapter when Mary Magdalene finds Jesus' empty tomb. He says, after witnessing Christ's crucifixion, it was a traumatic experience for her to go there. And that kind of speaks to us as a congregation when we realized our church was on fire. But as we know, that is not the end of the story. The resurrection shouts to us that the darkness does not win. Death is not the end. It is not the final word. 
resurrection is. And so we join as co-gardeners in this new creation that God is building, recognizing that it's not going to be fully realized now. We're not going to experience the fullness of that until someday when God makes everything the way it's supposed to be. But in the meantime, we can participate in building something beautiful that will one day be a part of God's forever world as we do whatever we do in love. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, In the Lord your labor is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that is soon going over a cliff, nor, however, are you constructing the kingdom of God by your own efforts. You are following Jesus and shaping our world in the power of the Spirit. And when the final consummation comes, the work that you have done, whether in Bible study or biochemistry, whether in preaching or in pure mathematics, whether in digging ditches or in composing symphonies, will stand, will last. So how might God be inviting you to be a co-gardener? And I loved what John mentioned before as he, as he talked about his work of carving and how his hope was that by doing something creative, it sparks something in someone else that might kind of challenge them to, to do something, to use their gifts to bring light and life into the world. And it struck me as a perfect analogy for whatever it is that is your gift, whatever it is that you do. What is the thing that you have to offer? Whether it's the work that you do or maybe a particular gift that you have that you could choose to do in a way that brings life and love into the world this week. As you do that, as simple as that might sound, you're choosing to participate in building something, growing something, that will last forever, that will be a part of this new creation that God is making now, has been making since the resurrection, and will one day bring to its fulfillment in the end. We get to participate in that. The resurrection reminds us that it's true, that we can hope, even in the midst of the darkness, that the light will win, As we kind of bring this time to a close, we're going to take communion together. And communion is kind of the, it's a, a, a picture of what it means to live as co-gardeners with Christ. That in the, body, in the, in the bread and the juice, we, we get this symbol of the body and the blood of Christ. Uh, his death on the cross that shows us the depth of God's love. And it serves as a reminder for us of what it looks like to live in love, to give ourselves in love for the people we come in contact with every day, at work, at home, in our neighborhoods. And it's a call to hope that love is stronger than death, that the resurrection is real. And then as you leave this morning, I would invite you, there's actually there's a table in the back with some seeds and some cups. Granted, they're Dixie cups, but it worked. Um, and these are wildflower seeds. And I would encourage you as you leave to take a moment and to prayerfully take a cup, scoop up some seeds, and to take them with you and plant them at home. 
And the reason why I would invite you to do this is because it's a symbolic act in which we're recognizing we've been given something, the spirit of Christ within us to empower us to live in love. But of course, to to hang on to those seeds and to plant them to do something is going to take some attention. It's not going to happen accidentally. If you trip and you spill them, they will likely not grow. Unless you happen to spill them on perfect soil that you then fertilize and water. But you know what I mean, right? Like, it takes attention to get it to where it needs to go and take care of it in such a way that it will actually produce something beautiful. In the same way, for us to live a life that produces something beautiful in the world, that joins God in his good work, in new creation, it's going to take intentionality. It doesn't just happen accidentally. It happens because we are intentional about opening ourselves up to God's work in us and looking around and prayerfully asking where we can join God in his work in the world. So I invite you to, to take a cup of seeds, to take them with you, and to prayerfully consider how might God want you to plant love in the lives of others this week. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion together. Um, If you are uncomfortable, for whatever reason, taking communion in this venue, you're welcome to just hang tight in your seat, and we'll um, continue in just a moment. Well, Father, we we celebrate the resurrection this morning. I know we all come from different places. Some of us walk in, and we're feeling just full of joy because life is great great and today's a great day and we have a lot of things that we're excited about and some of us are coming in not there some of us are coming in in a a dark place and some of us are just in between you know it's not not great but not horrible it's just whatever but wherever we are god would you meet us with uh i don't know just would you breathe on us in new ways your spirit and resurrect in us a sense of hope and expectation that you are doing something good in us and that you are doing something good in the world that we can take part in. That when it looks like the darkness is winning, we can live in hope that that the resurrection is true. That love will win in the end. That light is greater than darkness. And that the spirit that raised Christ from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies now and forever. So would you help us to live in hope today and every day and to give attention to the ways that we can plant love in the lives of the people around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.